Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, somewhere, yeah, I know the coin is passing around. You can bring it up uh, after the class. That's fine um, <clears throat> to, to look at it. Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> what, what, we're, what we look at, and, and we, we started this last week, um, the very beginning of chapter 5, it gives the quali- qualifications of a high priest. That's in the first four verses. And your sheet that we're looking at, I've listed them here as I did in the first uh, four verses. Uh, they were, the, the high priest was to be taken from men. He is appointed for men. The, the, priest, the purpose, the high priest, let alone the other priests, were to minister to people. Uh, they were appointed for men. Uh, they were occupied with things pertaining to God. Uh, they would have to bear gently with the ignorant and the erring. In other words, there were people who were just um, not aware of what to do. Uh, Ignorance is not a bad thing. Uh, We're all ignorant in one area or another. Uh, We should not be ignorant when it comes to spiritual things, certainly. Uh, But there are a lot of people out there who are ignorant. And again, ignorant is just you don't know. Uh, To willfully remain ignorant, that... Uh, then becomes uh, something a lot worse. So ignorance is not necessarily a bad thing. So they were to bear gently with the ignorant and the erring. Verse 2 of chapter 5, which we looked at a a couple of weeks ago. Uh, They were to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, verses 1 and 3, and they needed to be called of God. So that was the qualifications of the high priest. Jesus meets all of these. And that's the whole purpose of uh, really chapter 5 and certainly verses 5 through 10 showing that Jesus meets all the qualifications of the high priest in this area. Now obviously he would not meet all of the qualifications in the sense that the high priest had to come from what tribe? Levi, the Levites. Uh, And Jesus was from what tribe? Judah. Judah. Uh, Because his, well, there's, there's really, there's, there are three offices, and his earthly, his earthly ministry, 
primarily dealt with um, his first coming, what office? His first coming, Jesus' first coming, and his ministry of his first coming dealt primarily with what office? Prophet. He was God's spokesman to the people. Um, every word he spoke was the word of God. When he ascended to heaven and his present ministry, uh, sitting at the right hand of God, which is really the heart of what uh, Hebrews is dealing with and writing with, deals with what office? The priest, uh, as he is our mediator. He is our representative before God. And when um, Satan comes and makes a claim against us, Jesus stands up and says, hold on, Satan, you know, I paid the penalty uh, for that person. And uh, so he's, he's, our, uh, he's our high priest today. Uh, the final office that he will ultimately um, fulfill, if you will, is when he returns. And when he returns, he will be king. He'll rule from the uh, throne of David in Jerusalem as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, ruling over uh, planet Earth. So ultimately, he fulfills all three offices as prophet, priest, and king. And that's how Hebrews started out. In the very beginning, Hebrews chapter 1 you know, in the last days, God has spoken unto us by his son. Uh, that's the, the prophet. Um, he, uh, he is the heir of, heir of all things. He's the king, and, and by himself he had purged our sins. He sat down on the right hand of God. So he is the prophet, priest, and king. He is the anointed. He is the Messiah. But we're, we're getting into chapter 5, and, and this will ultimately take us to chapter 7, where we'll talk a lot more in detail about it. Uh, he meets the qualifications of the high priest. Verse 10, we'll look at very briefly, hopefully, tonight as we end, because we won't look at this in detail until we get to chapter 7. But he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, uh, which is the tribe of Levi. Because he's uh, from, uh, as king, he's, he's from the tribe of, of Judah. And... Um, We'll look at that in detail in a few weeks. When we get, It'll be more than a few weeks because I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, chapter 7, because um, I, I know someone here tonight has put in a lot of study into this subject in the last week or so. And you know, when you talk about Melchizedek, he's really an um, enigmatic individual, I guess you could say. And there's people out there that have all kinds of thoughts about who this guy is. Um, and so, and we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we looked at verse 5 last week. So, thou also, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. So Christ did not glorify himself to be, uh, become a high priest, to be made a high priest. Uh, God himself did it. And we looked at the phrase, uh, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Verse 5 quotes from Psalm 2. And interestingly, uh, if we didn't have the later scripture, the re later revelation, Acts 13, this day have I begotten thee is literally a phrase of resurrection. It's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and, and we looked at that 
uh, uh, last week um, also. Then on the back of that first page, verse 6, we looked at this. And he quotes, for the second time from an Old Testament or an earlier scripture prophecy, from the 110th Psalm. And he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we looked at the, we, we, we actually spent more time on the 110th Psalm than I thought we would or I planned on uh, looking at because it's a very fascinating Psalm. Uh, psalm 110 is the most oft-quoted psalm in the New Testament, more than any other psalm. Uh, and uh, it talks about the, the deity of the Messiah and implies the, uh, plura- or it doesn't, implies the plurality and unity of God because in the first couple of verses it says, the Lord said unto my Lord. Now, David is the writer of Psalm 110. David is the king of Israel. There is no other higher authority in the nation of Israel humanly speaking, than David as king. And David said, the Lord, Jehovah, that's actually what it is, Yahweh, Jehovah said unto my master, Adon, my Lord, Adonai. So if David is the highest human authority in Israel, and David says, the Lord said unto my Lord, and Israel being a a theocracy, who is David's Lord? Has to be God. Has to be God. So the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. Now Jesus would use this uh, in in the gospel accounts in Matthew um, with the Pharisees and, and those who came to him. Uh, and he said, well, how can David say in spirit, the Lord said unto my Lord, uh, sit thou at my right hand? Uh, he's, and, and he was just, uh, he really tripped them up. They didn't have an answer. You know, how can, how can the Messiah be both David's Lord, uh, the son of David, and David's, David's Lord, David's God? So what you have there is the plurality and unity of God. It's the only way to uh, make the scriptures um, work, mesh, like a hand in a glove, if you will. Because when you have God speaking unto God, we only believe in one God, monotheism, so God must be a plurality in unity. Now, we looked at that last week, and, and then in verse 4, um, and, and, and the first three verses there talk about his kingship. Because uh, sit there at my right hand, tell me, yelling, and make your enemies my, your footstool, and so on. And then in verse 4 of 110 Psalm, I got the verse here. The Lord has sworn will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's speaking of um, David's Lord, who is the Messiah, who is Jesus, who is also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we ended up reading on to the end of the chapter where it talks about the second coming, really it's talking about there. And, and he will wound the head of the nations. It's not, and and the, I know the King James has it plural. 
heads. Other trans and, and I didn't look at different translations, uh, but I know other translations as well. In, in Psalm 110, verse 6. Um, let me turn there. And if you have another translation, just out of curiosity, since I brought it up, um, perhaps you could let us know in verse uh, 6. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries, is how the King James reads. How, what, what translation do you have? Okay, the RSV then, the Revised Standard, has sing, and the point is, rush. That's it is singular. So anybody have another? What the New King James I think has heads. Does it plural? Charlotte, what do you have? Wow. <laughs> okay, I don't know why they came up with that. So it's, it's literally the word rush. When you think of Rosh, and we'll get, if you have an, anybody have another translation that haven't been mentioned? Next, on the side or whatever? Exactly, it's head, yeah. And because the, the Hebrew word is Rosh, and Rosh Hashanah, when we talk the head of the year, or the new year. Uh, and, and normally when we think of Rosh, at least to me anyway, well, what passage or what chapter of Scripture comes to your mind? Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Um, the Gog-Magog inv invasion, um, where Rosh is used there. But anyway, the whole point of that we looked at, uh, it should be singular, it should be head, and he, in verse 6, he shall wound the head over many countries. I believe that's talking of the Antichrist. Um, and, 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 and somebody brought this up last week, which was a very good point. Where else does it talk about the Messiah dealing a head wound? Remember? Yeah, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where it talks about the serpent would, wound, would, would, would give the Messiah a, a heel wound, not fatal, but the Messiah, would, the seed of the woman, would deal the serpent a head wound, meaning fatal wound, right here. Yeah, same thing. So it's, it's almost, uh, to me, it, it, I, I totally believe that is speaking here, about the Lord who will ultimately destroy the enemies of God, the one who sits on the right hand of him, who is also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and he, and, and in verse 5, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. This is Psalm, Psalm 110, such a great psalm. You know, it really says a lot. Uh, you know, when is the day of God's wrath? Well, shortly. It's the tribulation period. So, so it's the tribulation period. That's the day of, and the Lord who's at his right hand as the priest, as the, as the after Melchizedek, will strike at, through the kings in the day of his wrath 
and he will wound the head over many countries. He, now, ultimately, Satan was defeated, I understand that, on the cross. But when will actually, in, in, in point of time, at least for a thousand years, Satan be defeated? End of the tribulation prior to the millennial kingdom. Very, very fascinating verse there, which we looked at. So anyway, I, I was going to wait to Let's go to verse 7. Because um, in, in verse 6, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, just that the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he's called of God, he's appointed for men, that type of thing. Now in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard in that he feared. Now, it talks about who in the days of his flesh. This is the one who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But then the beginning of verse 7, in the days of his flesh. Now, what does that imply? He, he became a man. He, who in the days of his flesh. So he became a man. When he had offered up prayers uh, and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Now, first thing, he was taken from men. This is the requirement. He had to be uh, meet this, and Jesus was born into this world. Uh, genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, this is the, ge the generation of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He was born into this world, met all the requirements. He was uh, from the lineage of David. He was flesh, is what it's saying, Christ. He's the son of uh, Abra David, the son of Abraham, uh, Jesus, the Messiah. He had to become flesh. He had to become man in order to meet the requirement that's laid out here. John 1. Uh, verse 1 and verse 14, and then Hebrews 2, which we have looked at earlier. But in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's speaking about Jesus. Uh, he was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God, and he is God. Then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, who in the days of his flesh. Jesus was made flesh. He was eternally God. He was eternally the Son of God, who is God. And he ultimately became man. He had to become man. That's what John 1, verse 1 and 14 are teaching that the Word, who eternally was God, ultimately in point of time in history, became man. And that is such a, a, a foundational doctrine for what we believe. Um, there are, you know, that he's the God-man. That Jesus is very God, and he is very man. Uh, he is fully God, and he is fully man. And we, we, we never want to um, diminish or, 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 or lose that reality, that truth, that biblical truth. 
That's why, and I think I've mentioned it, I, I'm almost positive I mentioned it here, I know I've mentioned it in um, the ABF, about the man in Israel um, who uh, worked for Master's College, no longer. He worked for Master's College as a professor, and I don't remember the, I think around the middle 90s, he was hired as a professor by Doug Bookman. Most of you know Doug or know of Doug because we've had Doug here speaking at our prophecy conferences. Doug was the man that actually hired Bill Schlegel uh, to go to Israel to teach in the Ibex school there. And just recently, oh, I'm, I think it was February, March, uh, he let it be known that he no longer believes that Jesus is God and he rejects the, the Trinity. Um, and this is, you can imagine, called a real, caused a real brouhaha <laughs> you because know, he taught in this school for almost 25 years, starting from where he was with, I think he was one of the, if not the first teacher, one of the first teachers for the I, Ibex is Israel by extension. That Master's College, John MacArthur is the president out in California, started, um, and, and Doug is the one that started the program. Uh, a good friend of Cheryl's and mine, Will Varner, who we used to co-labor with, serve with, uh, in Friends of Israel, uh, was, was asked to come and, and head up shortly after it was started, and he did right around 94, 95, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, and to this day is the director of the IBEX program. And Bill was the first on-premise teacher. He was not the director of the program. Will was ultimately the director of the program. Well, you can imagine the, the, the heartache, the, uh, the consternation that would come, that, the, 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 the ripples that, that went out throughout some of the Christian world. Uh, Menno Kalisher, I know, who was very close to Bill, pleaded with Bill and talked with Bill about this, and he rejected it, and he's completely rejected it. And I gather, um, I think it was, Charlotte, didn't you tell me this last week, that over 20, for 20 years he's been questioning this? He, pardon? Quietly, Quietly yes. Yeah, quiet, you know, in his heart, obviously. Um, that means... If he was hired in 94, 95, and for 20 years he's been questioning this, almost from the very day, not quite, because it's 24 years ago, 23 years ago, almost to the, he was questioning whether Jesus was God or not. So, uh, it's very sad. All of that to say, it is so clear in the scriptures, and, and I think, you know, Cheryl and I had lunch with Bray and Charlotte last Sunday, and, uh, you know, Hebrews is just reinforced over again for me. Not that I ever, you know, I, I've never questioned it, but it just reinforced that Jesus is God, that he is fully man. I mean, you have to be blinded by the devil, and I would submit more than likely, I'll give, I'll give Bill the benefit small benefit of doubt now, uh, more than likely lost not to see it. You have to be an unbeliever. You have to be blinded by the devil not to see that the, the scriptures just teach in so many different ways that Jesus is God. 
And the Son of God is not a Son of God like we're a child of God, son or daughter of God. Son of God for Jesus is he is he's very God of God. He's very Lord of Lords. Uh, he has got the same essence and nature as the Father and so on. Um, so it's such a vital, vital truth that we believe. Um, and Hebrews, especially the first chapter, really just drives this home. So he is son of he is man from the lineage of David, fully man, but he is also fully God. He's the God man. And that is such a very basic foundational doctrine to what we believe. Uh, so he had to become uh, a man. John 1 talks about that. Hebrews 2. Uh, now we looked at this. It, it's down here in the um, in, in well. Actually, it's not down here, I guess. Um, didn't have, but when we looked at it, when Jesus became flesh, he became a partaker of flesh. And if you remember when we were in Hebrews chapter 2, there are, there are two words for, for, for partaker that you'll find in his Hebrews 2. And one of them talking about Jesus. He took on flesh, but he didn't belong. And the reason that he didn't belong is he, you know, because he didn't have a sin nature. So he was like us, but he didn't belong with us in that sense because we have flesh, but we have the sin nature. He actually took on flesh, but without the sin nature. Um, and the illustration that has always stuck with me, and, and this goes back many, many years ago, and let me look at Hebrews 2 just so I have it, you know, read it to you correctly and, and said it. Um, Verse 16, for verily he took not on himself the nature of angels, but he took on him uh, the seed of Abraham. Going, going back to verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Well, we being children are partakers of flesh and blood is a different Greek word than what we find translated later that he likewise... He himself likewise took part of the same. It's a different Greek word. And, and uh, a born-again believer from Greece years ago said, let me tell you, coming from Greece, uh, Greek being my native language, he says, the difference between these two words. And basically said this. He said, if I would invite you to my home uh, to come and partake of all the hospitality of my home, I would partake of that hospitality. You would partake of that hospitality. Everybody that was invited would partake of that hospitality. But I literally belong to that home. It's, it's, you know, it's mine. You don't belong there. So you're partaking of it, but in a different way. We, we partake of, the, of, of flesh and everything that comes with it, meaning the sin nature. Jesus partook of flesh, but not everything that comes with it in that he doesn't have a sin nature. So he doesn't really belong in that way. So that's, that's the understanding of those two different Greek words where we belong, we have everything that comes with flesh. He partook of flesh, but he doesn't really belong because he doesn't have a sin nature. Um, so he's the God-man, and we shouldn't ever forget that. Then it goes on. Um, Jesus prayed 
we are told he, 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 he made, uh, offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. And, and we know that. Luke 22. Uh, he was withdrawn from them, about a stone's cast, kneeled down, prayed. There's the praying part, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Uh, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat were, uh, was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So he prayed and he cried. Uh, but then there's this phrase here that we have in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Uh, he prayed unto God uh, to save him from death. And that becomes a... Uh, uh, you know, what does it mean he, to, Jesus prayed to save him from death? And some people want to say, well, that, that, what that means is that, um, you know, spare me from dying. Remove me from this physical agony that I'm about to go through. Uh, that type of thing. Uh, I don't think that is exactly what this means here, and I, there's a lot of people that doesn't, uh, don't believe this. Um, uh, I believe what he was praying was not to be spared from death, but to be delivered out of death. And there's a difference there. Um, Jesus came to die. There's all kinds of prophecies in that regard. Uh, Psalm 16:10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. So there's a prophecy that God would not leave him in hell. Um, and what he was praying then, I believe, and, and as we get through this, uh, hopefully you'll see it also, uh, Jesus understood that he wouldn't be left in the grave. Why did he understand that? Because there's prophecies. You know, when, we, when we pray biblically, <clears throat> the best way, well, the, let, me, let me rephrase that. The best way to pray is biblically. Um, when we get into, and, and I'm not going to mention it in a lot of detail now, when we get to Hebrews 11, <clears throat> um, if you want to turn there real briefly, um, and we're going to look at this in detail when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. The faith chapter. And, and it starts out in, in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is two things. The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. By it, or through it, meaning faith, the elders obtained a good report. And then the rest of the chapter talks about all these people of faith and, and what they did and how they, they got a good report from God through their faith. But here we have a, a definition of faith, and it's, kind of, it's made up of two things. It's the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. Now the substance, and, and, and I don't want to go too deep in this or we'll never finish Hebrews chapter 5. The substance is the basis, the ground, the foundation of what we believe. 
ultimately becomes the Word of God. And again, when we get here, we'll look at that. The evidence is our life. And what it's saying is, faith is made up of two things. It's always based on substance, foundation, ground, if you will, which is the Word of God. And if you really believe it, there's going to be evidence in your life that you believe it. That's what it's saying. And as you go through the faith chapter, you've got all these people who believe the Word of God and acted on it. That's what it's saying faith is. Faith is believing the Word of God and acting on it. It's not, the, the argument here is not that there's evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. There is evidence that the Bible is the Word of God, but that's not the argument here. But that, that's not the definition that we have here. What it is, faith is always based on something, and if you have faith, there is going to be evidence in your life, even though you don't see God. Has anybody here seen God? Hopefully nobody says no. Oh, it says yes. No, we've never seen God. Um, you know, but do you believe God exists? Does it show in your life? That's faith. You know, because, you, you know, it's evidence of things not seen. Have you seen heaven? Don't say you've seen, you know, yeah, well, you've, read, you've read the books, I know. Uh, you know, but no, none of us have ever seen heaven. Do you believe you're going there? Why do you believe you're going there? For faith, because the book says so, and you know that. And so, anyway, all, all all of that type of thing. That's what faith is. It's always based on a foundation. It's always based. Ultimately, that foundation is the Bible. So when we pray, <coughs> our prayers then should always be based on. Bible. That's why I, I've always said when I teach on evangelism, um, I always like to start with John chapter 16. Uh, when the Spirit of God has come into the world, Jesus said, he will convict the world, and the world being unsaved people, three things, sin, righteousness, judgment to come. So, Jesus said, when, I'm leave, when I leave, the, the Spirit of God's going to come in the world. Now, did Jesus leave? Yes. Has the Spirit of God come into the world? Yes, the Holy Spirit. Not that he ever left, but the point, you know, that, that God will, he, he is the comforter, the Spirit of God. <clears throat> and the Spirit of God will convict unsaved people of, in three areas. So if, if you want to pray for unsaved people, I think the best way to pray for unsaved people is not necessarily to pray that they get saved. But to pray, and it's not wrong, don't, don't misunderstand me, it's not wrong, you should pray that people get saved. But pray that God would convict them, the Spirit of God would convict them of sin, righteousness, Judgment to come. Sin is their rejection of Jesus, their rebellion, their sinfulness. Righteousness is Jesus and everything he is and what he did. And judgment to come is what happens if you don't accept God's provision, Jesus. And if you're not convicted by the Spirit of God, <coughs> you can't be saved. 
So I've always said the best way to pray for somebody who's not saved is to God convict that person of sin, righteousness. And, and what brings conviction? The Spirit of God, yes, but how, what does he use? The Word of God. So for someone to get saved, they have to get the Word of God, that the Spirit of God, and so you pray. <coughs> Word of God comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in written form. It comes in audio um, form. You can hear the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But that doesn't mean it only has to be audio. It can be also visual. You can read it or see it on a screen or whatever the case might be. All of that to say, do you think when Jesus prayed, he prayed biblically or not? Certainly he did. Certainly he did. Did Jesus ever have a prayer that wasn't answered? No. If he ever had a prayer that he didn't have answered, then he was not praying, what's the word I want to use? In accordance with God's will. So that means he was out of God's will and he was sinning. So he always, you know, now, how many prayers have we not had answered? Don't answer that question. Um, which means you haven't been praying in God's will, right? Now, it doesn't mean, you, you know, we want to pray in God's will. So when Jesus is praying, did he, he willingly came to die for the sins of the world. And he knew because it was written, Psalm 16.10 for one, Jesus, uh, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And Isaiah 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, speaking of the Messiah, you familiar with Isaiah 53. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If he was going to see his seed, <coughs> two, verse early, two verses earlier, excuse me for this cough, well, you know, I got a frog, you can I'll push the complaint button. But anyway, um, he knew he would rise from the grave. He died two verses early, he's going to prolong his days. He knew, did Jesus know the scriptures? Yeah, he is the scriptures, he wrote the scriptures, yeah. He knew he was going to raise, rise from the grave. So when he is in verse 7, he, uh, he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears on him that was able to save him, not from death. The whole purpose of Jesus' coming was to die, but out of death. Because would he die? Would he be left in the grave? No. That's, that he, that's what he was praying about, that God you know, would, would fulfill what he had promised, that you would take me out of the grave. Um, and, 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 and then it also says, um, look at the last part of verse 7. And he was heard. The, the, the implication there that, okay, I hear you. I'm going to answer that prayer. So, so did God save him 
from physically dying. No. So obviously his prayer couldn't be God save me from physically dying because number one, he died. Number two, if that was truly what he was praying, God would have then, because he, was, he never had a prayer not answered, he would have been spared physically died, dying. But maybe you could add a third point to this. We know that God heard his prayer, and he did die physically, but we also know what ended up happening. Was he, was he, was, was he delivered out of death? Three days later. Yeah. To all of us? By extension. Well, I mean, all your prayers are answered. Well, all of us if you like no as an answer sometimes, yes. Yeah, or you don't hear it. All of us will die. So. Every one of us will be resurrected. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess in that sense, yeah. Look, look what a believer's Bible commentary by McDonald and um, Farstad says on this. Christ's prayer was not that he might be saved from dying. After all, to die for sinners was his very purpose in coming to the world, John 12, 27. His prayer was that he might be delivered out of death, that his soul might not be left in Hades, hell, the grave. This prayer was answered when God raised him from the dead. And then if you go over to the next page, and I like this quote by Kenneth Weiss very much so. Kenneth Weiss says this, the writer now speaks of the training Messiah received for his work as priest. He also speaks of a prayer Messiah offered during his earthly life to the one who was able to save him from death. The implication is clear that he be, he, he be prayed to be saved from death. There are two words in Greek which mean from, apo, which means from the edge of, and ek, which means out from within. The second ek is used here. The Messiah, to be praise, Messiah prayed to be saved out from within death. Had the inspired writer used apo, he would have reported our Lord is praying to be saved from dying a physical death. At no time in his life did he pray that prayer. The cup for him in Gethsemane included two things. That he was to be made sin, literally a sin offering. And that the fellowship between father and son would be broken. Our Lord fully expected to be raised out from among the dead. And why did he fully expect that? Because Psalmist spoke of it. Because Isaiah spoke of it. Because the Bible spoke of it, if you will. So he was on firm ground when he was praying because the Bible had promised that God would, would, would bring the Messiah from out from death, is what he's saying. So Weiss goes on. Our Lord fully expected to be raised out from among the dead. Hence, there was no need of such a petition. Furthermore, if he had prayed for escape from physical death, his prayer was not answered. And the writer to the Hebrews says that this prayer spoken of in 5-7 was answered. 
which shows that escape from physical death was not in the, in the writer's mind. Luke twenty two forty two, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done from his apo. And means here in Luke twenty two forty two to be saved from the cup of God's wrath. But notice, Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So there it's apo used, remove this cup uh, 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 from me, um, but, but I don't want my will, I want your will, Father. So he wasn't spared. But when he did pray in Hebrews 5, it tells us, act out of, from within death, that, and it says at the end of verse 7, he was delivered from that. He was brought from death. He was resurrected. And so he's not praying to be spared physical death. He is praying very biblical prayer. And all along, Jesus always did. That's why he would never pray to be spared physical death. Not my will, but your will, God. He, but he did pray to be brought out of the grave as the Bible promised would happen. Did you want to say something back there, Bob? So what he, what he was praying here. No, he knew it. What he was praying for was the resurrection. Just, Father, you know, raise me from the dead, basically, he was saying. And it says at the end of verse 7, and in the next phrase I've got here, he was heard in that he feared. Feared means piety or reverent submission. Uh, Eulabia, uh, number of, you know, but it basically means reverence towards God, godly fear, piety it, it means. So he was heard in that he, he feared. He had reverence towards the Father as a man. He, he had piety. He was godly. And God would answer that prayer. Again, not to be spared physical death, but to brought, be brought out of the grave. And we know that happened. So in order, to, and, and here's a great, this is a great example for us. In order to have our prayer answered, we must come to God in humble submission. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was heard by God. He was not spared death, and that was his purpose of coming to the world, was brought out of death through his resurrection. So when we come to God, we need to come humbly in submission. Um, we often, I know we all, we always pray for sick people here, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we oftentimes play, pray, I think, wrongly for sick people. Um, what we should be praying is that God would be glorified in that sick person's life. What do we usually pray? Heal them. Heal them. 
I don't want my wife to die. I don't want my husband to die. I don't want my child to die. I don't want my friend to die. Lord, heal that person. That's what we normally pray. What we should pray is not my will, but thine. God, whatever brings you more glory. If you get more, and, and we don't know. See, see, Jesus was on solid ground. Why? Because it was in the Bible. That the Messiah would be resurrected from the grave. So he could pray, Lord, bring me out of death. And, and God answered that prayer. We don't know the end result of whatever sickness we might end up. And we're all going to get sick someday, one day. And one day, that sickness will be on to death. It may not be the sickness you, it, you know, it may not be, you know, what Joy says now or what Ray is going through on Monday or, or Tom is going through. We don't know. We, we you know, uh, you know, um, we, you know, Earl's going, you know, we're all, we all go through at different times something. And, and if you haven't gone through it yet, it's coming. But there's nothing in the Bible that tells us about that particular issue and what's going to happen. But it does say, whatsoever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. Yes. He's just appealing to God to fulfill his word. I think it's as simple as that. Um, I, think, I think that it had to do with um, the fact that he knew that, that he was going to be forsaken. <clears throat> well, he knew that too. Because Psalm 22, my God, my God, which he prayed, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, and, and he knew that. And, and perhaps that's part of it. You know, don't leave me there. Don't leave me in the grave. Um, death, yes. Death is separation. And Jesus, the Godhead has never been. See, this is, this is what we can never fathom, understand. You know, how did the eternal Godhead or eternally in fellowship at one point in history, the father had to turn his back, separate himself from the son when he t took our penalty upon himself. I, I don't, I, I, we, we talked about this. I don't believe he became sin. I, I don't, you know. He became literally a sin offering. Um, like that lamb or that goat took the sin judgment, the wrath of God, or uh, the wrath of God in the place of the people. Symbolically, he was, he was dying for the people. He didn't become sin in that sense. Jesus never became sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God, but he became the sin offering. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Uh, he was a sin offering for us. And at that point, when God put his wrath upon Jesus in our stead, he had to Turn his back on the sun. We'll never be able to plumb that understanding. Certainly, it's agony. Yeah, I mean, he sweat 
drops of blood. Yeah, that's how agonizing it was. And and so and that could possibly have definitely have a part in it, but he was he was praying to God, but God don't leave me. Bring me out of the grave. And he was on extremely solid territory. He was praying the Bible. He was praying the word of God. He was praying, if you will, Psalm 16:10. He was saying praying Psalm Isaiah 53 verse 10 where he would prolong his days. But in that very difficult time, he was coming to God. When is, the, when is our prayer life, unfortunately, the best? Maybe not unfortunately, but you know, when is normally our... Yes, when, yeah, when, we're, when we're going through trials. Yes, in our strife, in our difficulties. And that's when we really seem to get serious about prayer. Um, Jesus' prayer life was always perfect. But certainly what he looked at, I think he was just reminding God, not that God would forget, you know, we pray, it's not because God forgets, uh, but he was just, God, I'm, you know, this is, this, you know, this is what the word, don't leave me there. I know, you're, I, I know you, we have to be separated because of my paying the penalty, but take me out of the grave. That's what he's saying. So, and and looking at what he's going through, that I'm certainly I'm certain had a had a part in that whole thing because that was we cannot fathom. See, Jesus's physical suffering was not the worst. Was not the that, that was not the main issue on the cross. Hundreds and hun- thousands of people were crucified. Many were on the cross longer. The Jesus was not on the cross that long. You know, he was, he, people would be on the cross for days. He was on the cross for hours. So the, the physical suffering, you know, I, that's why I never went and saw um, Mel Gibson's film, Passion of Christ. It's a Catholic film. But I read reviews and I talked to people, and the emphasis was on the physical suffering. And at the very last, I'm told, in the last 30 seconds, it mentioned about him dying for the sins of the world or something. But the, the whole film of two hours or whatever the length of it was on physical, that's Catholicism. That's not Bible. The physical suffering was, and I'm not, I'm not demeaning the physical suffering of crucifixion. I don't want to go through it. But hundreds and thousands of people were physically crucified Many of them lasted so much longer on the cross than Jesus did suffering. Now, the, the major suffering that Jesus went, to, went through was spiritual. That was, that was what killed him. He gave up the spirit because he, he took the wrath of a holy God on himself. And that we can never fathom. We can never plumb the depths of that, what happened there. We'll, we'll never understand it. We can understand it to a limited extent, but we really can't get into it and understand it because it's just beyond our capability as human. It's not the physical suffering, although he suffered physically, certainly. It's the spiritual suffering. So. Yeah, separated from God, took in God's wrath, our penalty in our place, you know, and, and, and yes, and he was, and that's what death is. Death is separation. And when he died, 
his body was put in a grave. His, in his spirit, so yes, that's separated. Like when we die, our body goes into the grave, but where do we go? We go to the Lord. Absent, you know, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we separate, and our, and our body goes in the grave, but we go to be with the Lord. When unsaved people die, their body goes into the grave. Where do they go? They go into hell. Think of the rich, rich, rich man and Lazarus. They separate. Now, there's an eternal separation in hell from God. But death is understood biblically as separation. That's always the definition biblically. It's not ceasing to exist. And when Jesus died, his body separated from his spirit and soul, but he was separated from the Father. That, that's, we don't understand. You know, but it happened. So I, so I think unquestionably, as these men also say, he was praying, take me out of the grave. Don't leave me there. Don't leave me. And God answered that. And, 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 and the example for us, and I want to get into verse 8 so we finish this, and 9, I know we're hardly moving along. But anyway, um, we need to be reverent, submissive, and we need to pray based on the Word of God as best as possible. And so when we, and so when we you know, it's not wrong to pray God heal Joyce and heal Tom and heal whoever else is sick in here. I don't you know, Ray and on Monday. But Lord, the, the best prayer is, Lord, I want you to be glorified. And, and wherever you get the most glory, through my sickness and illness, if that's how you get the most glory, I don't understand it. But Lord, then give me the grace to deal with it. But Lord, if you'll get the most glory by my being healed, heal me or heal that person, whatever the case might be. Because we don't know which place God most gets the most glory. And that's really how we should pray. Um, so, verse 8. <clears throat> and, and we'll go through this rather quick, but I really want to get through verses 8 and 9. 10, we're not going to talk about a lot. Though he were his son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Um, this is where he would bear gently with the ignorant and the erring. Um, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, let, let me just read again Kenneth Weiss. Weiss has a lot of good stuff to say on, on Hebrews, in my opinion. He says this. There's no point in saying, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. All believers are sons of God, and they, believers, learn obedience by the things which they suffer. There is no indefinite article in Greek compared to the indefinite article in English. The absence of the definite article in Greek emphasizes quality or character. The translation should read, though he was son by nature. The deity of the Messiah is referred to here. The idea is... Though he was the Son of God, God the Son, very God of very God, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. The omniscient God knew what obedience was. How could he not know what obedience was? He's God. He's an omniscient God. He knows everything. So he knows what obedience is. He didn't learn it. He, he, he's the teacher, if you will. You follow? When you're omniscient, you don't have to be taught anything. You don't have to learn anything. You know everything. 
So as the Son of God, as the omniscient God, the very God of God, Jesus, he knew what obedience was. So how, what, is, what does it mean he learned obedience then? Well, Weiss goes on. The omniscient, the omniscient God knew what obedience was, but he never experienced it until he became incarnate in human flesh. Before his incarnation, he owed obedience to, obedience to no one. There was no one greater than he to whom he could have rendered obedience. But now in incarnation, God the Son became obedient to God the Father. He learned experientially what obedience was. It was not that he had, learned, he had to learn to obey, for he said, I do always those things that please him. In other words, he had to experience it. And he learned it in the sense that he experienced it in taking on flesh. And that's what it's talking about. He was occupied with things pertaining to God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Um, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. As a man, he became obedient even to the death of the cross. So Jesus then can relate to our situation when we suffer because he also suffered and learned through his suffering how to be obedient to the Father. He didn't know, it's not that he didn't understand or, or, or know what obedience meant. He learned it ex Experientially, he went through it, and so he experientially could relate then to us when we go through it. You know, it's not like we can say, "Well, you only know it." Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, well, you're sitting up there in your ivory tower and you know it through the book, or that you study the books, but you've never experienced what I've gone through. No, he has experienced it. And he learned it through what he went through. He, he, but not that he, it's not learned that he never knew it before. Uh, go over, turn your page over. And verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. This is where the priests have to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he uh, offered himself for the sins of the world. It's being made perfect. Was Jesus made perfect? Or was he always perfect? He was, he was never imperfect. Now, perfect is teleo. It's literally complete or, or to, to accomplish or consummate, to finish. Um, you know, I don't want to digress too much. First Corinthians 13 uses that uh, about becoming mature, becoming an adult, becoming complete, growing up. Uh, it's not perfect in the sense that he was imperfect and he's made perfect. Jesus was eternally perfect in righteousness, wisdom, knowledge, everything, every way. Being made perfect speaks of his having fulfilled all the requirements for the position of high priest perfectly so that he met the requirement to be a perfect high priest. He followed the will of God perfectly in his life and his death. All those things that the high priest had to be, 
um, that the first four verses uh, spoke of, taken from men, appointed for men, occupied with things pertaining to God, bears gently with the ignorant and the erring, offers gifts and sacrifices for sins, called of God. He met all of that. He met all the requirements of the, the, of the high priest. So he completed those requirements that he could become the author of eternal salvation is what it's saying. William Newell says it this way. Therefore, we read, having been made perfect, tested in every path, tried by every circumstance, tempted with the author of all, offer of all Lord's kingdoms, denied by one disciple, betrayed by another, forsaken of them all. What fault can we find? None. God found none. God raised him up the third day. Eternal testimony to the perfect obedience of his spotless son. And someone else says, Teleo is used 19 times in Hebrew out of a total of 24 New Testament uses. It's overwhelmingly used, this Greek word, in the book of Hebrews. The uses in Hebrews often convey the sense of, sense of to make perfect <clears throat> or fully cleansed from sin in contrast to ceremonial Levitical cleansing. See the uses below. The writer is emphasizing the importance of perfection, <clears throat> which should cause any Jew who is contemplating the worth of Christ in the new covenant to really realize his utter hopelessness to every, to, not every, but to ever attain perfection under the old covenant. There's a number of uses here. Um, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Salvation begins with Jesus, ends with Jesus. Obey does not mean we do all that he says and teaches. It's the obedience of faith <coughs> and believing him. All of that to say, teleo, perfect, means complete. When it's ultimately used later on in Hebrews, oftentimes it's meant to use, meant in, in the area of salvation, but not for Jesus. When, when we come into chapter 6 and, uh, of, of Hebrews, <coughs> um, <clears throat> let me see. Uh, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Messiah Christ, let us go on to perfection. Perfection there, and the way perfection is used in the Hebrews oftentimes revolves around salvation. And they're saying you need to get saved. It's what it's saying. When we come into, for example, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, um, look down at verse 22, I think it is. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw near unto God. Perfect there is obviously speaking of what? Righteous before God, or salvation. The law made nothing righteous before God. What, what made us righteous before God or perfect? The better hope, Jesus. Perfection, as it's used oftentimes in Hebrews, means it's, right, it's around salvation and that type of thing. And what it is saying here in, in Hebrews chapter 5 <clears throat> being made perfect, be, being made the, the righteous 
sacrifice of God, he became the author of eternal salvation. Was Jesus the righteous sacrifice of God? The holy sacrifice of God? The lamb without blemish, without spot? Yes. Doesn't mean he was made, he was always perfect. He was always the lamb of God without spot. And being that righteous lamb of God, he became the author of eternal salvation. When did he become the author of eternal salvation? What did he do? Which is what earlier he talked about. Died for our sins. Rose from the grave. And he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Obey him is believing the gospel. We uh, don't have time to go into all of this right here. But it's not obeying by doing all the works he tells. It's not a work salvation. It's the work of faith, of believing, that type of thing. Um, really, it, it, it deserves more time. Let me just read here. Uh, under verse 9, uh, towards the bottom. Obey does not mean we do all that he says and teaches. It's the obedience of faith to the gospel, Romans 1.5. The work of faith. It's believing. 1.5 of Romans. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The obedience of faith. John 6. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that might we might work the works of God? Jesus said unto him, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. You want to do the works? Old Testament passages, um, Genesis 14, Psalm 110. We'll look at this in more detail in the seventh chapter. But why can he be, be the author of eternal salvation unto uh, all who uh, call on his name, all who believe? All who obey him, put faith in him, because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not a priest after Aaron or the Levites, after Melchizedek. Because of that, he's the author of eternal salvation. You know, what we're going to find in the next three chapters, or two chapters really, six and seven, is one of the strongest arguments for eternal security, eternal salvation you'll find in the Bible. And there's a lot of good ones. In 6 and 7, we have one of the strongest ones. What becomes confusing is the first part of chapter 6. And so many people say chapter 6, the first part of 6, proves that we can lose our salvation. It doesn't. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 is one of the strongest arguments for eternal security. It's starting here. Why? <clears throat> he is the author of eternal salvation unto everybody who believes because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not because he's a priest after the order of Aaron, the Levites. If that was the case, we don't have eternal security. It's because he's the Melchizedekian priest that we do have eternal salvation, meaning it cannot be lost, never lost. It's forever once you have it. We'll look at that <clears throat> ultimately. It's going to take us um, 
at least two weeks to get through chapter 6. It'll take us two or three weeks to get through chapter 7. <coughs> um, and, and it'll be a very, very solid foundation for believing in eternal security once you understand it. So, any questions or thoughts? <coughs> okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.